George Balanchine is still, decades after his death, the best-known choreographer of contemporary ballet. 23 of his original works were inspired by one dancer, Suzanne Farrell. I believe in destiny. I mean, how, how could a little girl who had only seen Ballet Russe once a year come to Cincinnati and do Nutcracker and her orbit intersects with Balanchine. You know, it just seems so, so surreal. Laura Jacobs, who is a renowned dance critic and full disclosure, a friend of mine, once described Suzanne Farrell in the ballet magazine Point this way. Fearless in the face of multiple pirouettes and perilous transitions, she was like a force of nature. Earth, air, water, fire, feral. On this episode, the dancer who, with George Balanchine, changed the face of ballet. This is what it takes a podcast about passion, vision, and perseverance from the Academy of Achievement. I'm Alice Winkler. Adam this child is gifted. And I heard that enough that I started to believe it. If you have the opportunity, not a perfect opportunity, and you don't take it, you may never have another chance. It all was so clear. It, it was just like the picture started to form itself. There was no way in which a lie could prevail over the truth darkness over light, death over life. Every day I wake up and decide, today I'm going to love my life. Decide. My advice is, if they're going to break your leg once when you go in that place, stay out of there. (laughs) And then along come these differential experiences that you don't look for, you don't plan for, but boy, you better not miss them. A lot has been written about the physical and emotional pain of being a ballet dancer, but Suzanne Farrell never saw it that way. There's pain and sacrifice in in everyone's world. When I was dancing, I had no pain. You know, you, you, you have the choice of looking at the donut or the hole in the donut, you know, and I chose to, you know, devour the donut. Suzanne Farrell likes to say that timing is everything, in all of life as well as on stage. So before we get further into her story, I want to talk a little bit about our timing. Farrell recorded a conversation with the Academy of Achievement twice. You'll hear excerpts from both in this episode. The first was in 1990, just after she'd retired from the stage, but while she was still working with younger dancers at the New York City Ballet. The second conversation took place just a couple of months ago in 2019, just as she returned home to the New York City Ballet after a long hiatus to help stage a Balanchine ballet that was written for her. But our story starts 70-plus years ago in a little town called Mount Healthy, Ohio, where Suzanne Farrell was born. The town was originally called Mount Pleasant, but its citizens changed the name in 1850 after they survived a cholera epidemic that wiped out the surrounding communities. 
Farrell decided to change her name too when she started dancing professionally. She was born Roberta Sue Ficker and was much more inclined to climb trees than she was to sashay across the yard. I must say I was very much of a tomboy. So dancing was not something I had a great desire to do. In fact, ballet companies didn't exist in the Midwest when I was a child. One would come to town maybe once a year. So I think it's rather strange that I got into ballet, something that I hadn't seen. But what was my motivation was music and the fact that I love to move around. I'm always moving around. My first class started because my two older sisters were in one in dance and one in piano. And we lived about an hour away from town where the conservatory was. And uh, my mother had to take me along in the car. So uh, I would always be fidgeting, you know, while my sisters were having their lesson. And the ballet teacher came up and said to my mother that you really should have your daughter enrolled in some of these classes. It might give her some poise and help her to sit still and uh, make your life easier. (laughs) So I, I started dance and you had acrobatic and ballet and tap and I much preferred acrobatics being an extension of my tomboyishness and I liked tap because I liked hearing the, the results of what I my movements and I didn't care too much for ballet because you had to be more disciplined and you sort of uh, looked like everyone else and it required a certain kind of conformity that I didn't feel like I wanted to do. And uh, so it didn't interest me until I, steps got more involved and I began to get it into my body and I, I saw that this indeed had quite a bit of self-expression. It was not as uniform as I thought it was. Lots of times, frequently, in the early days of my dancing, I was very tall as a young girl, and there were no boys in the ballet school, so whenever the recital would come along, I was always the prince, never the princess. So uh, I think that's one reason also why I wasn't too crazy about ballet in the beginning, because I never got those pretty tutus, but of course all that changed. Yes, it did. The change actually began on a single memorable day that Suzanne Farrell described recently in her conversation with interviewer Mary Jordan. An occasion came where I was in a performance and I wore a tutu. And I was on a stage in front of the orchestra. It was a kinder concert for children. And I remember looking out on the, walked out on stage before the performance and looking out into the audience, the bare seats, the red velvet seats, the old music hall in Cincinnati, which is the oldest music hall in the country. And I could feel what I call the dust of performers who had been there before. And I could feel it, and I said, this is the world I want to be in. And so uh, from then on, I picked up a splinter from the stage. I have it in my scrapbook. And I did everything I could to learn more about ballet. How old were you? Twelve. And when you say you felt the dust, tell me about that. What do you mean? I could feel the presence of people who had performed in that theater and left their, what I call dust, their impressions, their spirit, their um, legacy. Uh, and that's, 
that haunted me and it inspired me and so I went to the library. In those days there were no videos, so I'd go to the library and get any ballet book I could. Most of the ballet books were written in England or, you know, not America because ballet in America was still young. And uh, I learned everything I could about ballet. And history you had and the everything. presence of mind to know, to, to take a splinter from the stage? It was that momentous. It had that much of an impact to me. It was like a revelation. Thousands of pretty tutus later, Suzanne Farrell wrote a book about her life in dance. It's called Holding On to the Air, and in it she calls her mother her conspirator. My mother was very interested in giving her daughters the advantage of music and dance if, if we had an interest in it. My father was not. He thought it was really uh, unnecessary. It cost money, which we didn't have. And uh, ballet in America still was quite a young <laughs> uh, profession and a, and a novelty. There weren't companies in every city like there are now. And it, I suppose it proved to him not to be a very practical adventure and uh, didn't require a formal education. And he was adamantly against it. So it was, it was a great controversy. And so there was no support there. And eventually my parents divorced, and uh, I was happy. I was grateful that I had dancing to fall back on. It, it was my survival tactic. It, it was my friend. It was always there. And the fact that I could work out not necessarily my problems, but my, so a lot of my emotions by going to class and dancing, I never felt lonely. And I'm grateful that I had, had ballet to get me through those days. And in fact, even when I became famous, it was a great, great friend to have. It's a wonderful thing to be able to dance, to tell your body what you want it to do, your leg to go up, and it goes. Not without a lot of hard work in the beginning, but the fact that you tell yourself what you want to do is a wonderful form of security to me, I think, especially in a world where you have so little say about what goes on in, in your life or in the politics of the worlds around you. It's wonderful to go into that studio and tell yourself what to do and you respond and it works. Suzanne Farrell's mother packed up all three of her girls and moved them to New York City, determined to give them their best chance at success. All four of them lived in one room in the Ansonia Hotel. But soon after they got there, Farrell went to audition for George Balanchine. It was on her 15th birthday. What did you dance for him when you were 15? He, well, I went in the room with him and he asked me if I had a routine, a number to show him. And I didn't because I thought, I, I didn't, you know, I thought he would tell me what he wanted me to do. And I thought my golden opportunity was flying out the window. So I said, but I have the variation that I did in the recital a couple months before. So I sang that. It was to uh, Vivaldi's Summer, Four Seasons, 
I was humming and dancing along, and I did a few steps, and then finally said, thank you, that's fine. And then he asked me to take off my shoe, my toe shoe, and examine my foot, because my left foot had been kicked by a horse on my 13th birthday. Everything happens to me on my birthday. And uh, it was not as arched as my right foot, but it was very strong. It mended very strong and served me well over the years. And I think he wanted to see how flexible that would be, how much improvement there could be there, or if it was as far as it would go. So I remember him pulling back my toes and pushing them one way, and I didn't know what he was after, so I just resisted. And I guess he felt she's pretty strong. And uh, went out the door, he said thank you, shook my hand, walked past my mother and sister who were sitting on these red vinyl benches uh, outside the studio. I looked at my mother, I said, I guess it's over. I went and got dressed and we went downstairs to have a ice cream soda at Schraft's. At that point, Suzanne Farrell said, there were pretty much only three options for an aspiring ballet dancer in New York City. So she put her hopes on getting into the Radio City Music Hall Ballet. But the Balanchine audition went better than she'd realized. A few days later, she got a letter saying she'd gotten a Ford Foundation scholarship to study at Balanchine's school, the School of American Ballet. That letter is still in her scrapbook with the splinter from the stage in Ohio. What do you think you could do as a dancer better than anybody else, or better than most? Well, that's just it. I was surrounded by other wonderful dancers. I would see one girl and her legs seemed to go higher. I'd see another girl who seemed to jump higher, another girl whose feet looked better, another girl. I always, I worried so much that I didn't have anything special. But you did. Well, not to me. I just, you know, uh, didn't feel I had anything special. And then over time, now, (laughs) in retrospect, I think what I had was a willingness to learn, to change. I didn't have an image like the older ballerinas had where they already had reputations and security and So Mr. Balanchine, especially when we moved from a city center, a small stage, to New York State Theater, which was twice the size, we had to learn how to move without the advantage of extra steps, without the advantage of adding music. We had to learn how to cover space and dimension and still look beautiful and not get out of breath. Uh, by being from a small stage to a big stage. So he was even revolutionizing classical ballet at that point. So I I had no image to lose, so I was willing to do whatever he asked, even if it seemed crazy (laughs) at the time. Or I should say not crazy, but, but extreme from what we used to do. And just what was this new look that George Balanchine brought to ballet? That's a complicated question to answer. Um, 
because it's also evolved over time uh, from when he first started. The earlier ballets, because Ballet in America was young, uh, they had a lot of scenery and very costumed because people were at that point where they liked production and grand opera and ballets with a lot of uh, scenery and swans and costumes. And you, you couldn't get an audience to come to the ballet without all of that, it was an event. And over time, he educated an audience to appreciate dance for its own sake, and he started stripping away the costumes and seeing the actual person as opposed to any attire or artifice. And it became more art instead of artifice. And then eventually, that opened him up to different composers. We dancers started moving faster, slower, all kinds of different um, degrees and ways of moving uh, because we were free. It was the collaboration between the two of you that seemed to lift both of you. And it, people said that when you were together on the stage, it was hair-raising, you know, it was mystical. What was that? And what did that feel like to be part of it? I wasn't feeling any of that at the time. I, you just, I, I live in the moment and that means you have to be available to what's happening at the moment. One doesn't go out and say, oh, I'm going to be mystical. <laughs> you know, it doesn't happen that way. You, I think you have to be honest and live in the moment and then maybe you will and, and reveal yourself. I think the more you reveal, the more mysterious you are. What does that mean? What do you have to reveal? In a performing art, any performing art I would imagine, you are disciplined and you practice to get your technique, to achieve high technique, and some identity. And then you work and you want to improve. So you start to get in the studio and rehearse what I call many people rehearse an opinion of how they want to look. They get their best angle, they get the best arms, they get the best legs, they, they look in the mirror and they see how they want to present themselves to an audience. And that's admirable because you're disciplined and you want to give your best, but it also is very narrow in that it paints you into a corner. And so you've practiced an opinion and, and, and a certain tempo, if it's too fast, you say to the pianist, oh, play a little slower. But when you get out on stage, you're not in control of the tempo, the conductor is. And so you cannot rehearse. You don't know what, how fast or slow he's going to conduct. You can't, you're, what you planned on doing isn't necessarily gonna happen in the moment that you get out there. So there you are without anything to fall back on. To the ballet audience, it can seem that the aim of the dancers is to faithfully and precisely as possible repeat the movements each performance according to the choreographer. But what Suzanne Farrell is saying is 
that was never her goal in rehearsal. That's sad to me. I always rehearse differently because, again, the moment is different. Um, maybe you'll maybe come time to do this ballet, you're going to be very unhappy. And so that will affect you. Yes, you get out there and you smile, but your, your feelings internally are different. The wonderful thing about life is that you can't, there will always be variables, and you have to see them and be aware of them to know how to react to them. Otherwise, you're living every day the same. So when I would rehearse, I would rehearse it differently each time. Maybe it would be awful, but it would be an option so that when I got out on stage, if the dictates of the moment required it, I had what I call my bag of tricks that I, could, that I had, had been through. And you just store them up for the time when, when they will come in handy. You have to be more flexible emotionally than physically, you know. Dancers have a lot of flexibility in their bodies, but you have to really be uh, emotionally Mentally flexible also. Is that what you tell your students? I do. I, I wish do. I wish people could have seen what you just did. You were moving your arms as if you were on stage. And it has I would love to describe that. How would you describe it? It's not it's the opposite of awkward and robotic. You lift your arm as if there's no air. What is that? I, I don't know. I'm, I'm having a difficult time sitting here speaking because I think better when I can move. I'm a mover. <laughs> and you see... Do you dance I, at home? No. No, I don't. Well, I move. I exercise. I, I'm very... I never sit down when I teach because, as I said, I, I think better when I'm on my feet. All my life I've been on my feet and thought on my feet. And so um, I'm, I'm very physical in that sense, even though I can't do much. Is there a piece of music that resonates most with you, that you hear it and you just have to move? Two composers have a special place in my heart. Tchaikovsky, because it was the first ballet Mr. Balanchine choreographed for me, and the last ballet he choreographed for me and uh, which was Mozartiana. So uh, they have sort of, I grew up with Tchaikovsky and Stravinsky, so they are very important to me. Do you still listen to them now? I have the luxury of staging these ballets, so they come back into my life. Great music. How important is great music to you? It's what makes me want to dance. Our two interviewers, Irv Drasnan and Mary Jordan, each asked Suzanne Farrell the inevitable follow-up question, and each time she demurred. I usually say that when people ask me what was my favorite ballet, I would say the one I was doing at the moment, because I live in the moment, as I said, and it would be terrible to be alive, on stage, in front of people, and wishing you were somewhere else or doing something else or dancing to another. However, the ballets that Mr. B did for me, special, that he 
for lack of a better word, created. He didn't use the word create, he used the word assemble because only God creates. So he would assemble. Naturally, those are, have a very special place in my heart because they came out of nothing. They didn't exist before we worked together. It has all the insecurity and the uh, unknowns and the awkwardness of no history behind it, no success, nothing. It's really being born in the moment of that in, in the studio. And that process is very frightening but very gratifying and exciting at the same time because it's never existed before. So you're making something out of more dust, stirring up more dust, and it becomes a ballet. The first full-scale ballet that George Balanchine assembled for his new young muse, then just 19 years old, was based on Don Quixote. Farrell danced as Dulcinea, the idealized dream woman of the delusional wandering night. Balanchine was already a legendary choreographer, but Don Quixote would mark the beginning of a new outpouring of work from him. For Farrell, the role would transform her career and her life. It was the first time a big ballet like that had been built around me. There were very few dancing roles for a company of 60 dancers at the time, so uh, it was basically my ballet and uh, that of course caused some friction from other people in the company because they weren't too excited about something where they didn't figure too prominently. On the other hand, I also had a job. I was paid as a dancer and this was my work and he chose me and living in the moment, I was gonna get the best out of it. So we, we started working and I started to read the book couldn't find myself in the book, a thousand page book, you know. And uh, finally I went up to him one day in rehearsal, I had the book and I said, I can't find myself in here, you know, where am I? And he said, no, you don't have to read the book. And, and so it was the beginning of where I really trusted him. Uh, we learned a lot. I, I believed that anything I needed to know about the ballet would be in his choreography. Uh, from a technical point of view, he started looking at me and asking me to do things that he had never asked someone to do before. And it seemed at the time impossible. And yet I realized that it's not impossible, it's just different and let's work on it. So impossible went out of my vocabulary. And uh, I said, no, I can't do it today, but let me work on it and we'll see. So it became a wonderful working, collaborating situation, laboratory I like to say, because you all, we were always trying and failing or trying and discovering. And um, when someone believes in you and you believe in them, I, I very much believe in people and trust. And I think it's a very empowering thing to give to someone and responsibility to have in return. And um, there's just no end to how hard someone's willing to work when you have their belief in you. 
it's where technique doesn't really play as big a part as as how you look at the picture, the part that you play in the picture, you know. So I, I learned a lot from that ballet. I also learned how to dance. <laughs> Most of their collaboration was nonverbal. As Farrell says, dance is a silent profession. But she and Balanchine started to develop a deep understanding of each other with movement as their common language. You write about the world premiere of Don Quixote mm -hmm. in your book. And just this, this passage, um, I saw only him, nothing else. We danced entirely for each other. And in a curious way, all the emotion was a relief, a release of everything that had been building up between us without any direct expression. The ballet became a kind of public courtship, a declaration where dance, mime, and ceremony mingled with our real lives and emotions so deeply that our onstage and offstage selves became interwoven. All of that is in retrospect. You know, you, you're not aware of all of that at the time. How could you be aware of that at the time? I was concerned with, you know, uh, the choreography, my costumes, my hair. I had several costume changes. I went from bare feet to having to get my um, feet into tiny little point shoes to get on for my next character. You know, there are so many practical and production and uh, technical aspects that you are concerned with. There's no time to think about and you were young. Life, you know, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Primarily because you couldn't duplicate that if you wanted to. If I said, I'm going to set out for this ballet to make me us like each other and have, you know, some kind of future, you can't make that happen. So you were only 19 and, and, and he was almost 60, right? Um, there was a huge difference in age. Not when we were working. You didn't feel it at all? No, because I wanted to work with him. You know, you don't, it's just a number. It's just a number. And he was very active, very vital. Uh, so much so that he, he did the Don Quixote part himself. You know, it was uh, uh, something he had wanted to do. So it was, you know, it was not, it was not a issue. And as I said in before, timing is so important. I, my coming at the later part of his life gave me all those ballets that he choreographed before I was even born or when, before I even knew I wanted to be a ballet dancer. I, I could dance all those ballets and then all the ballets that he did for me. So it's like I, I had his whole life I had the body of his whole choreographic life in my lifetime. And you came along and inspired him as well. I mean, you did a lot for him. People often say that you brought a freshness and um, a new joy and that your collaboration together made some of the most breathtaking dance of the 20th century. How would you say what you've done for him? I don't look at it that way. I was just having a wonderful time being a collaborator with him as it eventually, you know, became. That's not 
that's not why I wanted to dance, you know, to become famous. You know, I wanted to dance, I loved to dance, and he allowed me to dance and, and uh, in all those different ways. The intense relationship between the venerable old master and the young ballerina who inspired him caused years of speculation, and he did ask her to marry him when he left his wife, another dancer, who had developed polio. But Farrell said publicly 20 years later when she wrote her autobiography that her relationship with Mr. B had never been sexual. Here's how she described their unusual bond to interviewer Irv Drasnin in 1990. He, uh, of course, was my teacher. He was uh, my friend. We, we were, uh, I believe, also in destiny. I think that we were meant to be together, um, that we both had chosen these professions. He from Russia, me from Cincinnati. It's so strange that our, our worlds should our orbits should intersect, you know, and we both wanted to work in ballet, you know, so, um, so we became very close. We, ha we were very much in love with each other in many ways, and I think that if it hadn't been that way, we wouldn't have gone on to do the work that we did. We were both very professional, but, uh, and he could work with other people, and I could work with other people, but it was important in the whole scheme of things that we have this great love for each other. And it was devastating at times, but I tell you, I wouldn't trade it for the world. I wouldn't change any of my life. <laughs> I'd live it all over again the same way. In 2019, Mary Jordan wanted to dig a little deeper into the devastating parts. You have described uh, Balanchine as your soulmate, and in your book you, you mentioned it was like the first love affair when you look back on it. But then, when you married somebody else, you got fired, and that was a brutal period. Can you talk about that? Well, like I said earlier, living in the now, um, no longer being in the company became my now. I, I couldn't say I don't believe in Mr. Balanchine and his ballets and who he is anymore just because my now was no longer a, a happy, you know, in that dance sense. So, uh, and I think that's what allowed me to survive the years that I was away, is that I still believed in him. I never expected to come back. It was possible that I would never return. Uh, but I continued to do my Balanchine bars and maintain that speed because it wasn't required of me in the repertoire that I was doing in Europe. And speed is the probably the most difficult quality to achieve and the one that leaves you the fastest if you don't still work on it. It's easy to move slow. It's very hard once you learn how to move quickly to maintain that. That's why people have to keep 
training for a marathon and things because you have to work yourself up to that to that but level. But you got locked out of ballet. I mean, in light of what we think today, what would you tell a young dancer who, you know, you did a, you did your job, you were at the top of your game, and here is this man and he just didn't like it that you got married and fell in love with somebody else. What do you, I mean, how do you, as you sit here today in the Me Too era, what, how do you look back on that? And what would you tell a young dancer now? I, I love to dance for the sake of dancing. I didn't want to be a ballerina. I was no longer his ballerina, but that didn't mean that I could not be happy somewhere else dancing, maybe a different kind of happiness. Uh, but it, it kept me happy by being able to perform somewhere else. You have to give yourself over entirely to the next phase of your life. You can't be living in the past or brooding about it because that makes you unavailable to the moment that you're living in. <laughs> and um, I, had a, I had, a, had a great time. It's you know? impressive that you make the most of the current circumstances, but I must ask you, do, do you think it was fair what happened? I don't even think about it that way. You know, it, it happened, you can't. Some people probably thought it was fair and other people thought it was unfair. And you? I just had to live with it. It, 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 was, it happened. When you said you had to live with it, you have said before that there was a dark period there and some points oh, sure. you really oh, sure. were down. I mean, oh, sure. suicidal. Oh, sure. Because no one would hire us in America. We had to go to Europe, you know. Uh, but as I said, I was hired and I enjoyed it and, and I could dance again and I could show Mr. Ballant how I thought people should move in, in other places and I learned other ways of being uh, interesting on stage or alive on stage when you are not the most central focal point at that time. Uh, and I found that very uh, exciting. You know, it was a, a great learning experience. And, uh, and it turns out you're a phenomenal teacher. I, I love what you wrote here. You said, I caution my dancers and students alike not to focus on being a star or to demand star treatment, but to remember the stars they had in their eyes that made them want to dance in the first place. Yes, I, I say that frequently to them, especially when you get older and you try to stay current in a youthful profession. And when you try to improve, uh, you know, you, you go to class practically every day of your life. You have to make it exciting and find new things in it so that you just can't say, oh, I've been doing this all my life. You know, you should say, oh, I've been doing this all my life. <laughs> How lucky.
Suzanne Farrell had a much longer than average career as a professional dancer, 28 years. And I should explain here that George Balanchine did eventually relent and welcome her back to the New York City Ballet in 1975. So she spent the last 14 years of her stage career dancing with the company that she considered home. But it never for a moment felt routine. And every time she stood in the wings listening to the music and waiting for her cue to enter the stage, there was an element of surprise and anticipation. There's one thing that happened in my life as a dancer. I remember it vividly. It was the very first ballet that Mr. Balanchine made for me, Meditation, a pas de deux with Jacques D'Amboise and myself, to Tchaikovsky. And all about love. I had never been in love. It was very romantic ballet. And I was having difficulty with it. But in later years, we were performing it. And things were going along. And at the end of it, Jacques The curtain came down, Jacques came up to me and he said, my gosh, Suzanne, what was that all about? And I said, I don't know. It was as if Jacques' orbit of being on stage at that moment, my orbit of being on stage at that moment in that ballet, Mr. B was even watching in the wings, the conductor, the music, the audience, all those things just happened to align at the same time to come together to to make an eclipse, you know, or a supermoon or something. I mean, things have to come together for something to align like that. And it was wonderful. We were aware that it was happening, but we couldn't stop it and we couldn't make it happen again. And it had nothing to do with technique or anything. It had everything to do with timing. Every dancer's performing career must come to an end. But Suzanne Farrell was on top of her game for so long, it seemed like hers never would. Still, in 1983, not long after Balanchine assembled his final masterpiece for her and then died, she developed terrible pain in her hip. She could dance right through the pain and did for a couple of years, but walking was becoming increasingly difficult. Two years later, when she was 40, she had to face what was happening to her body, arthritis. By the time I admitted that I needed a hip operation, which was the hardest thing, I had denied it for so long that it was, it was a breakthrough to suddenly say, I need this. And I knew that I would probably never dance again, but I had no choice because by that time, I just wanted to be normal. I wanted to walk down the street, without limping, I I couldn't tie my shoes. I had no choice, and so I had the operation. And I thought, if God wanted me to dance, he'll let me dance. So uh, as it happened, it, it was a long process and slow, and consequently, I did get back on stage. I did dance again in a different capacity and not with the range of motion that I had, but I got back on stage not to prove a point, not to be some sort of oddity or, or hero, 
but because I wanted to quit myself. I had felt that I sort of had the rug pulled out from underneath me by, by my hip. And that um, I also knew that I would be better if I had a goal to reach. If I didn't care really whether I ever got out on stage again. I only knew that I had to try. That I, I would be unhappy. I, I would be unhappy if I didn't try, but I would not be unhappy if I tried and failed. And so that was my impetus to get out on stage again and to dance again. Finally, in 1989, at 44 years old, Suzanne Farrell said goodbye to the thing that had meant the most to her. It was tougher when I saw it coming because I abandoned my philosophy and I didn't live as fully in the now because I saw my, my now that I loved so much coming to, a, to an end. So I was, you know, I was really terrifically unhappy and devastated that I couldn't dance forever because I never got tired of my work. I never got bored with it. I never lost the commitment. I never didn't want to dance. And I don't know where all that time went to, but I saw it coming to a close. And I, I was really, I didn't know what I was going to do. I was lost. And strangely enough, on my last performance, it was so easy because it was the last and my life would go on. I would still wake up. I would still be a dancer. I wouldn't be dancing anymore, but I will always be a dancer. After her retirement from the stage, Suzanne Farrell continued to work with the New York City Ballet, teaching dancers to perform George Balanchine's ballets and follow his philosophy. But alas, there are politics and rivals everywhere, including at the ballet. And in 1993, Farrell was abruptly dismissed by the company's new director, Peter Martins, a dancer she had performed many a pas de deux with. It was her second time being exiled from her artistic home and a terrible blow. But it led to her establishing her own ballet company in Washington, D.C., and to promoting Balanchine's legacy around the world. But there is a new twist to the story as I record this podcast. Just a couple of months ago, after Peter Martins was forced to resign amid scandals of the Me Too variety, Suzanne Farrell was welcomed back to the New York City Ballet once again to help stage one of the first works Balanchine created for her. And you're only 73. There's so much ahead of you. Um, the New York Times and the Washington Post have been lauding that you're back, you came back to the New York Ballet. They were saying it was morally right, it was the right direction. There was a huge applause that they felt that you had left and it wasn't fair a long time ago and you were back. What, what did you think about going back? Well, I had been busy all my life. You know, it wasn't as if nothing was happening and then suddenly, years or so later, I went back. I I continued to stage Mr. Balanchine's ballets and have his presence in my life, and I feel that he's will always take care of me. Uh, but it was it was um, being back in that studio was as if I had never left and as if I had never been there. It had 
encompassed all those kinds of feelings. Uh, but it was, I had a good time being in the studio, working on a ballet that actually was born in that studio all those years before. So again, timing, you know. Uh, you just said Mr. Ballantine will take care of you. And the way you speak is like he's here. Do you feel his presence? I, I do, but not in a ghostly kind of way, in a very um, protective kind of way. Uh, spiritual in the, in the, of the spirit that he, you know, uh, will take care of me. He would always, yes, I feel, I feel that. Was way. it the great love of your life? Was he the great love of your life? I think that's uh, not unfair to ask or inappropriate. I think it's, it's difficult. Uh, again, I would never ask, answer for a person who isn't alive to speak for themselves. Uh, it was unlike anyone's definition of love affair. You, you, you can't describe it. Can you try a little bit? No. <laughs> you called him a soulmate? It was... I, I, that's part of it, yeah. That's part of it. I don't, I don't think it can be put into words. I really don't. Because so much of how we worked was speechless. Are you saying kind of what he used to say in that there's no need to analyze a rose, it's beautiful enough? I mean, do you not want to put words to it? I, I think that's a large part, yes. How, how can you describe a rose? Everyone sees it differently. It has perfume, it has texture, it has beauty, it has color. Um, I can feel the emotion off you as we sit here, you know, and you, you're, when you're thinking, sometimes tears come to your eyes. I don't think any, any, even a poet, I don't think, could describe what it was like. I think it would be unfair to describe what it was like because it would be inadequate. It is what you see, you know, his ballets are what he was all about. Arena, teacher and muse Suzanne Farrell. She is also a recipient of the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Ms. Farrell spoke with the Academy of Achievement in 1990 and in 2019. Our interviewers were documentarian Irv Drasnan and Washington Post national correspondent Mary Jordan. You can find more about Suzanne Farrell and hundreds of other inspiring figures at achievement.org. I'm Alice Winkler, and this is What It Takes. What It Takes is funded by the Katherine B. Reynolds Foundation, a standing ovation for them today and for you, our listeners.